Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. This week, I have two guests speaking on fairly different topics, linked by the fact that they both give very effective debunkings of some mainstream economic opinions floating around. First, I speak with J.W. Mason, economics professor at John Jay College in New York City. I asked J.W. to explain the debate that has erupted around Bernie Sanders' economic program. J.W. argues that the criticism of Sanders from mainstream liberal economists is about managing and keeping a lid on regular people's expectations for the economy. The critics are effectively saying, this is the best we can do, even when millions are condemned to poverty and shitty jobs. Be sure to check out JW's post on this topic at his blog at jwmason.org. Second, I speak with Nathan Tankus, a writer also based in New York City, on why housing is so unaffordable, especially amidst a massive condo building boom in large cities. Nathan walks me through the history of the Chelsea neighborhood in NYC, uh, one where he lives, and its long process of gentrification as a way of drawing some conclusions about why the housing market is so screwed up. Turns out it doesn't work like the model described in Economics 101 textbooks. First, though, here's my conversation with J.W. Mason, and I open with a short introduction to the ongoing debate around Sanders' economics. So, so in the past, in the past couple of weeks, the debate erupted in the U.S., for lack of a better word, wonk sphere, on uh, Bernie Sanders' economic policy ideas. Um, and it was precipitated by a paper by Gerald Friedman, who is a former prof of yours, as I understand it, and a bit, a bit bizarrely a declared Hillary Clinton supporter. Uh, but he published this paper that claimed Bernie Sanders' plans would lead to uh, 5% economic growth, nominal economic growth over uh, a certain period, uh, very substantial uh, income growth, particularly for working and middle class people, uh, and and massive job creation, and pretty quickly, liberal economists like Paul Krugman, um, four former chairs of the President's Council of Economic Advisors under both Clinton and Obama, responded to this paper, and they called it you know various things like unrealistic, fantastical, and and so on. So the first thing I want to say is, I, I mean, I, I have to admit that the figures in Friedman's papers struck me as improbable in, in some ways when I first saw them. And, and I, you know, you, one can quibble about the specifics and, and the politics that, that would be required for this paper and all, to produce these results and so on. But I thought you, you had a really good intervention in this debate and you made a much more general argument um, that perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised to see such numbers after a long period of, you know, what's been slow growth. And that's been something that's been acknowledged by by the mainstream. So, so maybe, you know, you can start just by laying out generally your your argument uh, in, in this debate and, and, and particularly the sort of more, more general one you're making. Interest so far up till now, I think, in the campaign in sort of the core questions of macroeconomic policy, whether we uh, can or should want to see a higher level of GDP of employment, uh, faster growth going forward, um, haven't really been central in the campaign on the Democratic side. And, you know, uh, Jerry's paper really raised those issues. Now, I, I don't think we want to get caught up on the specific 
strengths or weaknesses of that paper or the plausibility of those particular numbers. I think that there are some problems with the paper. If, if you were to do the same exercise more carefully, you probably would come up with lower numbers than the ones that he, uh, he came up with. I, I think it would be foolish to defend the specific estimate that he put out there, but I also don't think there's any good, any real need to do so because the fundamental issue, as you say, is not, um, you know, this number, that number, because obviously, of course, things evolve under the pressure of events. Economic forecasting is a very imprecise science in the best case. But is it is there good reason to think there is space for a substantially more expansionary policy? Is there good reason to think that a big expansion of public spending could substantially boost uh, GDP and employment? And I think I think there the answer is very clearly yes. And I think that this paper and the debate that it sparked have actually been very productive in getting people to engage that question and getting a number of more, you know, mainstream democratic associated economists to agree that there actually is space for substantial additional expansionary policy. What does this debate say about, more broadly, just about the sort of diminished expectations about the economy? that yeah. that we have right is, is this what it's is this, is this what you're saying that's sort of fundamentally about and and is there a chance to sort of to undermine this that is what it's about the position on the other side you know the the cea chairs and you know christina and david romer and various other people who've been sort of the most vocal critics of these estimates has been implicitly or explicitly this is as good as we can do we're not talking about core economic macroeconomic policy issues because they're not they're not a, a problem right now that we have 5% unemployment, which is full employment. The economy is at potential more or less. There isn't any, there isn't any demand, aggregate demand problem to solve. That's implicitly or explicitly the position of many people on the other side. And I think that's really a problem. That's, that's very unfortunate. I mean, first of all, it's just, I think there's very little reason to think it's true, but I think it's really kind of disturbing. Um, you know, the vision of the world that that comes out of, you know, the story the other day about the number of people um, in the U.S. who are living on, you know, cash, actual disposable cash incomes of $2 a day or less. I mean, it's, it's shocking, but there are large and growing number of such people. And, you know, the political implication a lot of people drew out of this is this is a result of welfare reform and a sign of what a terrible choice that was, which is certainly true. But in this context, I really have to wonder, do you really honestly think that there are so many people who are incapable of doing anything of any value to society that would be worth more than $2 a day? Are there people, are there so many people working at these extreme low wage jobs? Are they doing those jobs, those minimum wage jobs, because they simply lack the skills, they lack the human capital, they lack the work ethic to do something more productive, more valuable for society? I certainly don't think so. I think there's, there's, there may be low formal unemployment and there, you know, the, the, the sort of what we, look for when we look for unmeasured unemployment, we look for a fall in the employment population ratio. That says there's definitely some space, but perhaps not a huge amount. But I think when you ask, you know, the slowdown in labor productivity that we've seen, does that reflect just somehow some technological incapacity or human incapacity, or does it reflect the fact that a lack of, of demand and spending and growth has condemned a huge number of people to to just scrape by doing crappy jobs for little pay who are perfectly capable of doing something much more productive and valuable and rewarding for society and for themselves in a society, in an economy that was functioning at a higher level. That's to me the ultimate, you know, what's at stake here. Yeah. And that, that actually goes right to the question I wanted to 
that I wanted to follow up with. The critics of these of higher potential growth or, or all of these things have pointed to these long-term structural changes in the U.S. economy, so this fall in the um, employment rate due to population aging and, and the seemingly permanent fall in productivity growth. And you're, and you're saying that we should really question these. And it, and it seems like there's yeah. something that there's something very political that sort of reflects this kind of technocratic consensus and, and something about, you know, shifting. If, if people aren't getting the benefits of growth, then why talk about growth at, at all in some ways? Well, they are getting the benefits because we don't have enough of it. You know, the last time that we had uh, a real compression of wages, the last time we had people, a lot of people entering the, you know, the workforce who normally are the absolute last to be hired, people coming out of prison, people without high school diplomas, and you saw, last time you saw market wages rising at the bottom, it was in the late 1990s. Why? Because this this is what happens when you have a really strong, booming economy, when you have a tight labor market, when you have you know a high-pressure economy, an overheating economy, what happens is people get drawn into the labor force and into higher-wage jobs than they're going to be able to reach otherwise. You know, the best way to raise wages is to push unemployment way down, push growth up. You know, the notion that, that, that we've just got you know that people's people's wages just depend on some inherent characteristics. Their you know their 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 productivity. It's just some personal property of them. It's 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 absurd and it's insulting to the people. All these people doing these low wage jobs, and it's also contradicted by history. We see very clearly when you have more when you have really strong growth, you have a lot of rising incomes at the bottom, and a lot of people who society sort of tends to give up on turn out to actually be capable of, you know, doing doing useful work. I guess an even more general question is, should we, you know, on whose terms should we be having this debate? Should it should it just be about growth and growth rates? It seems like you're saying, in some ways, you are trying to say that maybe we should shift the focus of the debate, not just to growth, but, you know, again, the distribution of gains, the, the quality of sort of, yes. if, you know, the quality of spending or whatever the government's doing, the quality of policy, the amount of work that people do, what kind of work it is. Is there a way to push these questions in? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, the big, the bigger question here is, can we have, do we, do, can we imagine an economy that is, it is dramatically better for ordinary people than the kind of economy we have now? And the implicit message from the CEHRs and so on is, no, this is as good as it gets. Um, and I think we can. And yes, I mean, I don't care personally about growth as, a, as in itself. I don't care how much you know stuff is being produced in terms of GDP. But I know um, history that a full employment, rapidly growing economy is much better for working people. It's much better for wages. It gives more bargaining power to people in the workplace, and that has an immediate effect of higher income. But it also has a longer term effect. Um, in terms of the sort of power and, and hierarchy in society, I think there's a persuasive argument, persuasive to, to me anyway, that a lot of the sort of new social movements of the 60s and 70s were the fruit of an extended period of, of very rapid growth, very low unemployment, of, of, a, of a, you know, you had a setting in which people didn't worry about getting fired because there were, there were tons of jobs for people without credentials. And you could, you could, you know, tell your boss, take this job and stuff it and walk out and get another. You read this stuff about the early 70s, it's a different world. And it creates all this space for other kinds of politics, other kinds of transformation for the workforce if people are not in this constant state of fear that their basic material needs are not going to get met. So 
to me, in terms of this debate over growth rates, that's the actual stakes. Not not you know what the number of GDP is going to be, but are we going to have an economy that's that's running at a strong enough pace that is growing that that needs enough workers that people have that that stronger bargaining position and that security. Yeah, and I guess that brings out <laughs> that brings out why why there might have been such alacrity in yeah in the response yeah. right. I mean, I've been I've been writing about this around monetary policy. And by the way, that's the real stakes here, I think, because you say, well, you know, it doesn't matter what your stimulus might be able to accomplish. The Republicans are never going to pass it. Well, might be true, might not. You never know. And again, well, first of all, obviously, you don't know what the situation will be in two years or four years and things change. So if you know in general where you want to go, you can adjust your course along the way in response to circumstances, if you don't have a goal, then you, you can't take advantage of openings when they do appear. That's one. But two is that the one thing any pre- president can do is make appointments. And they also have a lot of regulatory power. And, you know, you can't maybe do a big stimulus of exactly the kind that, the, you know, Sanders might be proposing, but there's a lot of things you can do if your goal is to is to boost demand through various regulatory channels. And you have to, again, but you have to have a clear goal in mind. You know, I almost think based on a blog post, uh, you know, that Brad DeLong put up, it was sort of his big statement on this. No, you can't wave a magic uh, demand wand and get back the recovery that we missed out on in 2009. So you could have done it then, you can't do it now. But I sort of feel just those first three words, no, you can't. That's That's sort of that side. All the reasons why you can't. You know, you you can't do anything. Just give up. I mean, it really is almost almost is the tone of it. So you know this this notion of Republicans make everything impossible. It's just another bit of ammunition for the no, you can't side. But the truth is, there's there's lots of space, and you have to you have to you actually have to make a positive case for how you want to use that space. There's still going to be somebody running the Fed appointed by the president. And, they have to take a position. How fast can the economy grow? And right now we have a, a system that says as soon as wages start rising, that you have to, you know, throttle back demand. And that's, I think, in a lot of ways, because the people running the show don't necessarily want very fast growth. They prefer an economy that's sort of sputtering along because it's one that involves a lot of uh, insecurity and a lot of a lot of weakness for for working people when there's when there's just a chronic sort of oversupply of labor people can't rock the boat fundamentally about about sort of bargaining power and again yeah, if it's yeah. it, again distribution of gains right if there's low growth but if you're able to get a large chunk of 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 what's coming out of it then then that might be better than than creating a situation where uh where people have the gall to uh, to demand something more, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So I think you know, I think that's you know that that's really what it's about. It, and, and you know, I should say, I think there's been not in the terms that I'm laying here, but I do think it's been a little hard for some of the centrists to defend the idea when they're actually put on the spot and have to defend it that this is this is as good as it gets. This is the best we can do. Because there is a sort of deep-rooted idea that higher growth and employment are good things. Um, there's there's one counterargument that says yes, we could have had a bigger stimulus back in uh, 2009, and if we'd done it then, then we would be better off now. We would have higher employment and we'd have had faster growth. But we missed our chance. It's too late because all these people left the workforce during that period. Businesses just didn't invest and that means we missed out on all the innovation and improvements and 
we would have had and people's skills atrophied, all this stuff. Which, okay, well, you know, I think there's some truth to that. I think the failure to do an adequate stimulus in 2009 does have lasting consequences, but then you turn it around. If, if, if that's true, then it goes the other way too. It means that a really big stimulus, a really big expansion in public spending today doesn't just boost incomes and spending today, it also draws people back into the labor force. So I think I think the argument, if you really think the failure to do it then has these lasting consequences that makes it harder to do it now, that actually suggests there's much bigger benefits to having a real high pressure full employment economy, not just in the short run, but over a longer term too. I think it's it's kind of just logically it has to go both ways. And it's it's a little hard to justify the view that this persistent slowdown relative to you know where where we were ten years ago is is really is 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 the best possible. And the question is then how to how to create you know how to how to use these kinds of debates to to, to you know to to help to help the sort of political campaign or just to to help the sort of broader social debate rather than one that's just in. Yeah, that's right. When it's just walks arguing over numbers, that's not very interesting. But when you when you put out the real question of do we do we want to have a commitment by the you know the executive by the federal government by whoever we're looking at here to do better, or are we going to let them say this is this is the best we can do? That's that's really the actual debate here. Can we have a you know? Can we can we have a much better economy in terms of growth, of course, but more importantly in terms of employment and income and security for, for ordinary people? That's that's the actual question. That was economist J.W. Mason with some criticisms of liberal opposition to big thinking on economic policy, especially that coming from Bernie Sanders. Next, Nathan Tankus on why the housing market is so screwed up. You're from the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. Um and Manhattan in general, I guess, is, is really one of the ground zeros for uh, gentrification and, and, and really the ex- explosion of unaffordable housing that's really changed uh, the city landscape in a lot of places, and especially these big, big global cities like New York, London, Vancouver, um, where I grew up. What's the, what's the short history? Maybe we'll start to like just contextualize things about what's the short history of housing sort of in your neighborhood and what... And what do these kinds of local things say more broadly about how the housing market has changed and how housing has changed? Chelsea has an has an interesting history in at least the last last few decades, in that um, of course uh, it's famous for being a gay neighborhood uh, early on from from the, from the eighties at least, and it was also a pretty pretty rough rough neighborhood went in the seventies or eighties to. 10th or 11th Avenue, basically where the High Line is now, we'll get to later, it was still it was still an industrial area with meatpacking and all that kind of thing was classic, the piles of, of uh, scraps, cars, like really run down area. Like pictures you see of Detroit now, you could get some of those same pictures in the 70s and 80s. Hard to imagine today. Yeah, in, in my yeah, it's 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 unimaginable today. It was in a place of massive dis- disinvestment in these areas because they were collapsing. As essentially the deindustrialization of the country was happening to two neighborhoods like uh, like Chelsea and the Tenderloin District uh, in the West Village. There was started to be reinvestment in the 90s. Part of it being a gay neighborhood. Part of it being uh, that especially 
where the highlight is now, because the area was so cheap and because it was so traditional uh, commercial real estate, that you could put up a gallery for very cheap. And it was it was it was relatively convenient in Manhattan to have these galleries for artwork. And so it grew as a neighborhood for galleries in the '90s uh, through the '90s to the early 2000s, which started kind of a first wave of reinvestment in 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 the neighborhood. Uh, and that process continued through the 2000s, started pushing certain things out, um, some some classic some classic neighborhood institutions started to be started to feel the pressure at that point. And so at the major wave was in 2008-2009, when actually you expect the maybe gentrification to be on the lull, they built uh, a bunch of basically patrons from the neighborhood, people who have been supporting uh, the arts in that area, decided to uh, support the building of a public park called the High Line. And this was a complete change to the neighborhood. And it was, for some people, it wasn't easy to see in the beginning, but over the last five years, it's completely transformed the neighborhood and has caused a real estate boom all across. Basically, if you walk the High Line, it is a maze of new high-rise construction or high-rise construction in the process being made. Especially if you walked around a year and a half, two years ago, it was almost it was mind-boggling how much construction there was being. So there's been immense uh, immense reinvestment in building up uh, in this neighborhood, building up of high-rise apartments. I mean, just. And the neighborhood has been completely transformed from uh, from the 70s and 80s in a ways that you would be put in a mental asylum for suggesting at that time. Unless, of course, you were writing a real estate report explaining how this is all going to work to fellow elites. The interesting thing is there, like in so many places, I mean, Vancouver, we saw the same thing. There's, you know construction site on construction site on construction site this sort of goes against this sort of simple simple simplistic economics 101 story about supply and demand where this huge influx of housing supply has actually contributed and and been you know and gone along with increasing lack of affordability why why is this so like what's you know what's your explanation for this and what's a way to explain it that gets beyond these kinds of you know really simplistic theories that um, that don't seem to apply? Well, first we have to talk about what actually is the supply and demand curve saying when you see it. It's very intuitive when you look at it. It's a, Frankly, it's a very good propaganda tool, but there's details behind it. There are equations behind it. There, there are assumptions behind it that don't get discussed. So one of the first assumptions is, of course, that this is a market, meaning that this is a market and that this is a market where all the goods are undifferentiated meaning there's one good, meaning, so if, and so the, the what's, what's brilliant about a supply and demand curve, but what's also very misleading about supply and demand curve is that you can interpret it in any way to apply to your situation. So if it, if it seems to fit more of the facts to say that it's a supply and demand curve of apartments in New York City, then you'd say that. If that doesn't make sense, then you say it's a supply and demand curve of apartments in Chelsea. And if that doesn't make sense, you go back to the macro or some other. You can always try to find some category in which the supply and demand curve fits. So, the thing, the, so one of the central assumptions is that apartments aren't the same. An apartment in Chelsea is not is not the same 
use value. It's not the same benefit you're getting than an apartment in the east side or the car apartment on the tail end of the Bronx. The second thing is that when you build, a, you build an apartment, you change the value of the neighborhood. You change the value of it to uh, to businesses in the neighborhood because when you build a new, you know, let's say you build a new luxury high-rise apartment, you're bringing in high-income people to that neighborhood, which will benefit businesses that cater to high-income people and will help push out the businesses that benefit lower-income people because they won't see as much of the benefit, but there'll be all these businesses, all these luxury businesses who want to move in that neighborhood and get some of this uh, rich people's money that you have that you have to compete for and are bidding up your rent. And are, that your landlord will be able to find some luxury store, anthropology, uh, a certain point it was urban outfitters, but now that's too low that's too <laughs> low key. I mean if you walk down the high line now, it's an amazing array of high priced uh, fashion designers of and the Gucci and all and all these things that are that the people who live in projects near that neighborhood Aren't aren't going to be shopping at, and so that's that's the first part is that this is not one good. The second part is, and that once you build something, it transforms the neighborhood. The other thing is that when you real estate isn't just a market of rent, it's a market of the building, and so you something that can maximize the rent of the building, something that if you could rent out the most, if it involves lowering the rent on a significant percentage of your apartments could lower the long-term value of this apartment. And so since for a landlord, their income isn't just their rent, but it's also the value of their building, their capital losses are gains, they're going to do things that don't, just, that don't just increase their overall rental income, they're also going to do things that increase their rental income and preserve the capital value of the building. How, how is that done? Or is that the same sort of, is that the same process then of just having this sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of network effects and things that kind of build off each other and, and create kind of, you know, zones where where every values kind of rise together and it's in everyone's interest to keep that, you know, going? Yeah, I mean, it's partially that. It's partially just that um, the vacancy rate for a luxury apartment is going to be much, much higher than a vacancy rate for a low-rent apartment. For, for apartments of the, serving the very poorest in the city, these people, basically, the people who are renting out these apartments, especially if they have mortgages, basically can't afford not to be renting out an apartment. But people on the high end, sometimes they can't afford to rent an apartment. I mean, there's a very specific reason that when they do these deals with the city um, to, to, to build an apartment in exchange for having some affordable units, with affordable definition being very, very generous, they often try to do things like build the infamous poor doors, or do various things to segregate the, uh, the poor inhabitants because they don't, because otherwise, if it's just, oh, we're renting to anybody in this building, you're taking down the value. I mean, frankly, rich people, when they're renting an apartment, when they're renting an apartment in a luxury building, they're not just renting a nice apartment, they're renting nice neighbors, they're renting a safe, safe neighborhood, they're, re- they're, re- they're renting the security that a person at the, at the door gives. Yeah, they're, they're renting a whole, it's, it's what it's what some people call the bundled services. They're not you can't with with an apartment, you can't just rent one thing. You can't rent the neighborhood you're living in, the the neighbors you're living with, the you can't rent all these different uh things that you want. You have to rent it all in one in one bundle. 
and there's the, you don't get separate supply and demand curves for each and everything that you could possibly want. I mean, there's there's a reason it's 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 of course racism, but it's not irrational that you have a wave of people who move out of a neighborhood uh, when an African American moves in that neighborhood in the 40s and 50s. This is a very rational response in terms of their capital values. I don't agree with, but it's you can understand the expectations, of course, the biased racial expectations, but it's also based in something. It's also based in something real, and and, and it's frankly, it's all to the benefit they're getting. They're not. That's the, that's the fundamental point. Is when you're renting an apartment, you're not just renting that one thing. And most discussions of real estate try to simplify it down to the the most simple point and just try to just try to focus in on specific issues. Oh, if we just build more supply and kind of want to abstract from these from these bigger issues and issues of economic rent and issues of issues of distribution that get wrapped up. And what's interesting is if you go into actually real estate economics outside of an economics textbook, they deal with surprisingly they deal with a lot of these issues. And I think oh Serious real estate economists are very skeptical of a lot of the suggestions that come out in terms of, uh, oh, if we just uh, let you build X amount of market rate of housing, you'll right. be able to push down the price. Of this and market. just and, and have whatever ten percent or twenty percent reserved for for this or that for under for some kind of subsidized units or what have you. What's the solution then? In some you know not not in some kind of big big picture way, but what does this what does this point to? in terms of what would be the fundamental ways to deal with these sort of drivers of unaffordability? Like, where are they located? Not so much as a, you know, ready package solution, but just what what would you have to, where would you have to focus attention to deal with this kind of unaffordability and what's happening? So one of the things I, w- I want to emphasize crucially that I think might be a little bit controversial on the left is as much as I support the building of public housing, and I, I completely support building a public housing in every way, at the macro level, at the level of cities and the level of all, all cities, building public housing is not going to uh, gain, gain control, of make, make housing affordable for most people in any sort of reasonable time frame. For public housing to, even from a mainstream perspective, for public housing to have a, a, a big benefit in terms of Making housing housing affordability very high for everyone, it would have to raise the vacancy rate, meaning the rate of all uh, rented apartments that are available for uh, that are available for rent uh, that are, that are open. It would have to be raised them significant percentage. And since the all rented apartments in say New York City is about what, two and a half million apartments, to raise even the vacancy rate one percent. You have to you have to raise it twenty five thousand units, which is a significant amount of units. And this isn't just units you build one year. You have to persistently have that amount of units available for rent in order to push down rental prices. And there are certain people that discuss that there are places with policies that open up land for new development for development of affordable housing to push back against higher prices. But there's limits to this process, and especially the limits to the process in a place like Manhattan, and it's a policy you have to have long-standing. If you want to, if you treat the uh, the affordability crisis in cities like Vancouver and New York as a crisis, 
then it's going to take a much more aggressive response than just building public housing. It's going to mean direct interventions, tighter controls on the rental markets, more protections for renters. It's going to mean, dare I say it, controls on how much on how much landlords can raise the rent. It, it, direct interventions, not just in, in what in New York is stabilized apartments or rent control departments, but just uh, frankly, broad interventions in the in in the market, in the ability to raise prices on people, to to gain, gain control of this phenomenon. Uh, I've, I've, to to be to be frank, I don't I don't see in given the state of uh, our affordability crisis how you, how you, you can avoid that. And second of all, uh, uh, another crucial point is environmental racism. Is that as long as you allow the logic of the market to determine uh, what people, how people live, then necessarily they'll have, they'll experience environmental racism. There was a recent Jackson article about uh, the uh, the railway going from that's a plan to going from uh, Queens and Brooklyn. How it mostly supports uh, is the line proposed is mostly supporting affluent neighborhoods now. But even if it were if it were aligned in time to go to neighborhoods where that were very underserved by transportation, those neighborhoods, by becoming more accessible, much more accessible, would become more valuable neighborhoods. In the same way, building a park in that neighborhood is, will make it more valuable. And if the answer isn't don't build neighbor, don't build parks or public amenities in poor people's neighborhoods, the the, the answer is you need to have some control over the amount of the rents they pay so that you, so that when you increase public services to them, it doesn't just push them out in my neighborhood in Chelsea. When they built the high line, it pushed people out it was a massive push out. That's, that's what that high line did. The high line's a very nice park. If you walk on it, it's, it has beautiful views of the Hudson river, but it's act, it's functional purpose was a park that was uh, nice for tourists to, to look through and nice for affluent people who wanted to move to that neighborhood. And it pushed uh, low-value uh, commercial real estate, which is, which is incidentally all of the things that people like about a neighborhood. And it pushed out people. I mean, frankly, the only reason why uh, I'm able to live in the neighborhood and other people with, without much income are able to live in the, income, uh, the neighborhood is because there's a, a public projects that's still there, miraculously, and then there's my building, which is a limited equity co-op, started by the International Garment Workers Union in the 60s, and that basically delivers rent at cost to people with a vote in the, in the co-op to this day. And that those are basically the only people besides a few assorted random rent controls in that same lot department who can afford to live in Chelsea. Yeah, I mean, I think that hits hits an important thing on the nose. It's exactly this sort of, you know, to use to use a really neoliberal word, this kind of synergy between between services, public services, and then, you know, private profit that comes and, and, and private gain that comes from being close to them and, and from being in some kind of, you know... The, basically a sort of planned process even though we don't like to talk about it in that way that there's you know that this is really urban planning but it's urban planning in the interests of capital gains essentially on real estate 
Yeah, and I, I would, on that point, I'd definitely like to suggest some intellectual forefathers for me to, to look to, which is, of course, Robert Fitch, wrote the great book, Assassination of New York, really knows where the body's buried, Doug Hedwood, who follows along in that work, and Michael Husson, who was a longtime friend of, uh, of Fitch and has written a lot about capital gains and real estate at, and how real estate functions at a macroeconomic level. And so that, I, I, I would never want to suggest that, that anything I've said here is solely my own, that there, there's a, there's a tradition here that while it's on the margins is an important tradition to contend with and has a lot of historical grounding, especially in New York, in the history of New York City urban political economy to look to. That was Nathan Tankus speaking on unaffordable housing and what we can do about it. That's all for this week. Talk to you again soon.